Today is March 5th, 2015, and you're listening to Human Factors Cast, episode 8080. Today on Human Factors Cast, we're talking about navigating with three-dimensional sound, skin sensors in space, and how VR can let you walk in someone else's shoes. Put that snazzy smart jacket on, because Human Factors Cast starts right now. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today, almost in studio, by Mr. Blake Arnstorf. Oh, it sounds so good. I might just be in studio. Nobody oh. really knows. Nobody knows. We we are here in studio. It it sounds like we're in studio. We're trying to bring you professional sounding podcasts as well because, well, we're doing this for free, but we still want to make it sound like a million bucks. Isn't that right, Blake? Of course. This is our product. We want to make sure that it is everything that everybody else wants it to be, but most importantly, that it sounds good to listen to. <laughs> yes, absolutely. 100%. So, Blake, what's going on in your world since last we met? Oh, man, there's a lot of stuff going on. So last week, I spent all of the week in, ah, where was it? In Yosemite, in the snow, hanging out for a UX conference called Epicurrence. And it's uh, it's put on by a guy named Dan Petty. He's a big-time freelance designer in San Francisco. Uh, I actually think he's going to start working for Twitter soon. But anyway, it was a lot of fun, lots of fun in the snow, snowboarding, networking, great learning opportunities. But it was just one of those things that I wanted to shout out because it was a, it was a great great experience as far as being able to meet designers from all over the globe from people living in california or across the states but also those living internationally so i met a, a grand amount of people from uh barcelona actually so oh, that, wow. was a lot, that was a lot of fun to interact with um and any, then just taking workshops and all that kind of good stuff any listeners from the show uh no listeners from the show uh, most people had not heard of human <laughs> factors they were more concerned about like branding and design and just user experience in general so a lot of the conversations i had talking about my background it was very like eye-opening for people kind of where the methodology for ux research comes from so it was really cool well that's really good well hopefully you made a couple friends and hopefully they are new listeners and if so if you're a new listener welcome to the show uh we, we appreciate you taking the time out of your busy, busy schedule to listen to us rant and banter and talk about the news in Human Factors. So, Blake, I got to talk to you. So, uh, I, I, did par- I did taxes this weekend. Uh, oh, lots of fun. Oh, no, it wasn't. I got to say, though, uh, there is um, some supercharged tax software. I'm not going to say the name, but it's supercharged tax software that you use to automate your taxes right and they employ some of these dark patterns again i'm not going to say the brand it's just supercharged tax um you get where i'm very going subtle. with this very subtle yeah, yeah yeah so so they use these dark patterns it really pissed me off man and i gotta like call them out for this like th- there's this whole thing where uh you um I didn't pay for it, obviously, but they snuck it in, like without you even knowing, right? If you want to, if you want to take out the, uh, the the amount that you owe this supercharged tax software for their services, you can take it out of your refund. But they charge you thirty dollars for doing so, and they're not very clear about it. It's kind of hidden in the terms of service. It really is upsetting, especially when you're like doing taxes is stressful enough right you got to get all your documents together and and then well and then- see nick that's really interesting that you say that because i have used said supercharged 
service. How do you know which and, service I'm talking about, though, Blake? You don't know. Uh, yeah, I do, because I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. I know that cost, too. But it used to be super overt, and they would let you know like how much was being taken out. So I'm super interested to know what you're talking about and how they changed the pattern. Yeah, it'd be... Uh, you know what? Maybe I'll post it in the Slack. Hey, that's a great transition to our next point. Hey, uh, you wanted to make this shout-out, so I'll let you make this shout-out. Yeah, so I thought this was really cool. A listener in our Slack, Joseph, actually posted that he had gotten into his Human Factors Master's grad program. And I just thought that was a really awesome thing and wanted to shout it out on the show, as well as congratulate him in Slack. If you want to uh, congratulate Joseph as well, hop in our Slack, because we have a good time in there, and there's a whole bunch of resources. We talk about the stories. But anyway, yeah, I just wanted to shout out Joseph. So congrats again for getting into your grad program. Yeah, you know, I will say um, over the last week or so, I've been reaching out to all of our Slack members individually and um, have kind of been seeing where their interests are and kind of what inspired them to join the channel and just starting this, these one-on-one conversations because it's often like sort of intimidating to get into these new Slack communities where you, um, you know, there's a bunch of new faces and new new names that you're unfamiliar with and it's sometimes it can be difficult to get out there so i'm just like trying to go through and like welcoming everybody and trying to see you know who we got in the slack and and some of these people who have joined our slack are really interesting and and um i can't wait for them to start conversing with the rest of the slack so uh very exciting we got a couple new people in um let me see if i can call them out here i don't know if we've called out on the show we got dan um we got Neil and Peter, Peter, Piotr. I- I'm going to mess that up and I'm so sorry for doing so, but I don't know if we've called you guys out on the show, but thank you so much for joining our Slack. Uh, and uh, we welcome any, uh, anybody else with open arms. Okay. What else? We, we got events. You got some events to go over, Blake. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So this week, if you're in San Diego or in any kind of the neighboring cities of San Diego, there's a big, uh, What's it called? Yeah, it's a big meetup for UX Speakeasy, I think it is. But anyway, so it's called the Complete Design Leader, and it's with a big-time design leader. I think he's from GitHub called Peter Merholz. And anyway, it's just a it's a good good event for those more like mid-level and senior audiences trying to figure out how to like lead teams. Uh, so definitely check it out if you're in the San Diego, California area. Again, that it's on Wednesday, March seventh. Uh, there's only a few tickets left, so. If you, if you are going, make sure to grab one. Uh, the only other event I've got in here, Nick, is I wanted to just throw it out again. There's the Human Factors Healthcare Symposium in Boston, March 26th through the 28th of 2018. And again, I'll be trying to go and get some information about some of the sessions and hopefully bring up some of that on the podcast to maybe have a special guest. Yes, yes, that'd be great. And hey, I don't know if you saw, but I was reaching out to our listeners, and one of them is actually in the Boston area. So... Uh, hopefully you can meet up with them and any of our other listeners who are going to be in Boston for this health uh, healthcare symposium. Uh, be- that would be perfection because I will be hanging around Boston and I'm actually not going to all of the conference. So if you want to hang out and show me around Boston or just talk human factors, please let me know in the Slack. Yes, let's let's hit up Blake and uh, definitely get him to, to, to hang out with you guys while you are in Boston. Wish I could be there, but Blake is our uh, eye on... Uh, eye on the scene. What do they call it? Like uh, eye in the sky. Eye in the I'd sky. Say, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, man. Let's get into the human factors news. 
This is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to, you guessed it, the field of Human Factors. Now, this could be anything from medical. I dealt with some of that today. Uh, Transportation, psychology, whatever it is. As long as it relates to the field of Human Factors, it is fair game for us to talk about and dissect on this show. Blake, what do we got up first this week? Uh, first, we got a story from Nokia. So Nokia has been creating unconventional products for years and years now, and the company is now showing off a new project in the works. It's called the Connected Health and Safety Equipment, or Chase Life Tech First Responders Jacket. So this smart jacket was designed in collaboration with Kalon Ace, South Korean fashion brand, and Gina, a software developer from the Czech Republic. And it has a few things that make it very different from your average first responder jacket. First off, there are modular sensors on it, which allow the wearer to access heart rate, temperature, GPS location, and other motion data. And these, the benefit of this jacket overall is the swappable modules. So they're located on the sleeve and the chest. And this is where you can take sensors on and off and f- that fit the needs of the wearer. So, for example, if a member of the police force might want something like a body cam module rather than a temperature sensor, sensor uh which would be more suitable for something like a firefighter so nick i gotta say man i feel like this is the way of the future and you know nokia has tended to make these unconventional products but i think they're heading in the right direction here with this smart jacket wear that's both fashionable and functional it's funny that the ugly phone guys are making a quote-unquote fashionable jacket uh and i think this was actually a comment made in our slack that fashionable by whose standards right and i mean i you know i made the point that safety is fashionable i um so i used to ride motorcycles and one of the like i guess one of my staples is i i really liked being safe on the road as a cyclist you have a uh, uh or as a rider you have this very sort of uh life-affirming thing where you have to be seen or else you will get run over and so i was always wearing the big yellow vest and this reminds me of that but yeah so safety is fashionable let me just say that so this thing is pretty neat uh just overall i mean some of the functionality that comes with it is um is pretty rad because you have what heart rate monitor what were some of the other ones i'm i'm looking at the bullet points right now uh, yeah, so there, there's a bunch of different options, right? GPS. Where you could either apparently have a actual body camera, which is a really cool that it's modular. Because if you look at the jacket, I mean, this literally looks like you just slap kind of a, a sensor in place, either on your chest or on your arm, and then you can just pop it right off. Uh, but also, like like you were saying, there's the heart monitor, also just motion in general. Um, and then I think they've even got uh, just temperature. Um which it was kind of cool reading about this, that it's it's not just that these sensors are kind of out there to, if it, in the case of police, like monitor what they can see, or if in the case of like an EMT, maybe being able to get heart rate monitor stuff off of them. It's, it's also communicating it back to a central location where the, that information can be acted on by like an extra observer. Yeah. Uh, one piece of something you were talking about with the... Um the EMTs. I wonder if with the body cams, they could actually record uh, some, some of these life-saving techniques that they're using out there in the field and then use that as a training piece, right? The getting that human factors piece of it where they actually use that footage as training for other EMTs that are going through training. 
Yeah, I could see that as a definite benefit of this jacket, especially with the the camera module, right? Because you could even, if we want to get really abstract, you could even maybe translate that into a VR experience. It's, it just gives a whole lot more data that people get to work with from a training aspect. So it's a really good application. Yeah, you bring up VR in our Slack. We're having a conversation about potentially having a heads-up display that can augment, uh, you know, night vision, LiDAR mapping. That was uh, Mateo's suggestion. And, you know, I, I saw something at HFES. I don't know if we ever went over it in our HFES bonus episodes last year, but we uh, I, I saw this thing where uh, these firefighters were basically had this um, this 3D map of a space, and they were trying to basically use virtual environments to uh, sort of get around and navigate and see if they could get to these people. And if you had that as some sort of overlay augmented display, it could be incredibly useful for helping you know locate trapped people. So. Uh, you know, there's there's tons of uses for this. I'm just excited. More data means uh, better an analytics down the line, and that's going to mean more life saved ultimately. Yeah, we we joked a little bit, and it's obviously talked about in our Slack how this is kind of an ugly looking jacket, but it's 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 got safety purposes behind it. But the interesting part is is having the the color plus some of this data that's being transmitted. I mean, this is really to help save not just. Ev- other people's lives, but also like kind of protect police officers, firefighters and EMTs. Cause in the case of like a firefighter, it, uh, it can, it can really understand like how their heart rate's doing. And based on like the, the situation they've been called to where they are in that situation, how much motion they're giving off. Do they, are they in a precarious situation? Is their heart dropping? So it could potentially save the lives of the people who are for lack of a better way of putting it, running around, saving our lives. Right. And another piece of this that I find absolutely fascinating is the modularity of it. Right. So you can have different roles uh, and and they just build these modules and you basically just pop these modules into this jacket. And if, like you said, if there's uh, a police, a police force, they can put the, the body cams. If, um, you know, it's firefighters, they can put temperature like the, the modularity of this is is really fascinating to me. And it'll be curious to see what kind of uh, gadgets or, or widgets that they make for this jacket itself. Yeah, it'll be cool to see how it goes. And also, I think there's a big opportunity here for Nokia to think about how this can translate into wearable technology, which we'll talk about in the next story in a different context. But it's like an everyday kind of thing. I mean, I could see integrating this to anything from, you know, somebody's jacket to somebody's like suit jacket, Um, maybe even (laughs) transmitting something like, I don't know, notes to you about a speech you're giving. I, I just think there's a lot of applications in wearable technology and also trying to integrate it in a way that makes it seem seamless to the user to the wearer yeah so uh eventually you'll be able to plug one of those ugly phones from the 1990s into this and be able to make phone calls too so there's that (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's nothing like the sliding phone from the matrix that nokia made Uh, but it's the most ugly and unfunctional phone there is yeah all right well why don't we jump into our next story here all right, so keeping along with the world of sensors, but in a much different context. So with work, when working in space, astronauts are at high risk for experiencing mental distress due to the unique set of challenges and dangers they face doing their job, which, of course, they're in space. But in response to this, researchers and students from Florida Polytechnic University are developing technology that will be fitted into the next generation of spacesuits and space clothing in an attempt to boost psychological well-being, as well as maximizing the comfort and efficiency using what is called smart sensory skin. 
These are wireless sensors that detect a range of physical deficiencies and will make automatic adjustments in the astronaut's environment, whether it be in the spacesuit or aboard the spacecraft, in response to the individual's needs. So these adjustments could include making changes in temperature, the light exposure they're experiencing, or the light and color of oxygen levels. So, Nick, this is a really unique application, I think, I think of sensors, but also like like we were talking about transmitting data to a third party observer that can make changes based on the individual's needs. Uh, now, of course, we, we're kind of dealing with a much different context and a delayed um, experience of like signals being sent because we're talking about from, you know, Earth to space. But still being able to change somebody's physical well-being based on their environment. All, ba- all from data you're getting from sensors is pretty incredible. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the most appealing aspects to this to me is the application of artificial intelligence to something like this, right? Think about in the future when you have um, sort of these profiles of these astronauts, right? And and you know what kind of response to give to astronauts that are perhaps in an anxious state. Um, then, then there would be that sort of uh, there wouldn't be that delay anymore. You'd have instantaneous relief for the astronaut, for the worker in this situation where it could potentially be the difference between life and death because by the time the signals go to Earth and they interpret it and send back the appropriate responses, you know, it, it's, it's going to, it, it could be a matter of life and death at that point. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I couldn't even imagine uh, the... The different the different levels of anxiety and stress you would experience in this in that kind of environment or context, um, but to even think that we could just read some something as simple as blood blood pressure, or just general bodily functions, and try and decide like okay, what can we change in the environment that's going to either help them or stabilize their own blood pressure or make them more comfortable is just it's kind of insane to me that we're we're we've just jumped from basically talking about smart wearables in a jacket and now to smart wearables in a spacesuit. Well, yeah. And, and not just a spacesuit, right? Most of NASA's innovations that, that you get in sort of these, um, these very applied situations, they actually end up coming back down to earth in some way, shape or form, right? Uh, foam memory foam mattresses, for example. Uh, now I'm, I'm thinking about something like this being applied down here on earth. I can imagine a ton of jobs that could benefit from this. A surgeon, uh, any sort of job where you have to have very fine motor control under very intense circumstances. So a surgeon, can you imagine, (laughs) can you imagine putting this on a surgeon? And like, if something goes wrong during the surgery and they're like, I, I mean, these guys are trained to have like a steady mind, right? They're they're supposed to be able to handle well under pressure. But if something does go wrong, then they could potentially provide a more soothing environment for them to sort of relax a little bit and and get back into the focus without having to worry about keeping their body in check. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I feel like we've talked a lot about the medical applications of this and one kind of extension here is putting sensors on patients, right? Cause then you could get, you know, that point of care, whether it's medication or IVs um, more quickly to the, to the patient without actually having to wait until either a nurse or a doctor came in for their next round or even having to alert anybody else immediately. So it's, it's just an interesting uh, application across, across the world. I mean, I, 
I still can't believe that something like smart skin uh, hasn't been more applied across like just things on earth. Cause it, of course it makes a lot of sense in the astronaut context, but I feel like there's a lot of application here um, from jobs that are either really high in terms of intensity, but even as more of a, of a way of helping people cope with anxiety, just general anxiety. Right. So what could they, what could a, a smart suit or a smart skin sensor do to help somebody cope with it, with their anxiety? Could it, you know, change the and change their local environment could it try to reduce their like their skin their skin galvanizing it's there's just a lot of options with this kind of sensor technology yeah and i mean like even they could give you a hug if you're feeling anxious right the the thing could literally constrict to give you just a little bit of a hug right almost like a thunder jacket for dogs or or, or animals you know um and i I, I just thought of another application like divers, right? Divers who lose their sense of direction underwater in these caves and systems like that, right? So having the calming effects that this suit does could definitely result in people being able to... What are you laughing for over there? <laughs> because that segues so well into the next story. Oh, because you, it's, it's the same thing. You saw what I was going for there. All right. Well, before we jump into the next story, why don't we thank our friends over at TechCrunch and Gadget, University of Barcelona, and Newsweek. If you guys want to follow along with us, you can go ahead and follow us all over social media, like, subscribe, do all that stuff. Or you can follow us on our Slack for links to the original articles. We even post some amplifying information and articles that we don't even talk about on the show. So go join. All right, Blake, let's get into our next piece. All right, so last week, Microsoft launched Soundscape, a new iOS app that aims to give people who are blind or visually impaired a greater awareness of their surrounding by using 3D cues. It's worth stressing that this app isn't about replacing guide dogs or canes, but instead it's about enriching people's perception of their surroundings. So as a guide dog can't tell you what your that your favorite store is just around the corner if you're unfamiliar with the city or street you're on the app can so with this app users can set audio beacons for destinations and landmarks using gps and built in the built-in compass in the phones uh, and the app then generates spatial audio cues based on where you're trying to go so i actually downloaded the app earlier and put it on instagram like going through some of the basic tutorials for this and it is it's pretty incredible um from just the initial setup uh it's especially if you don't have like some of the um you know screen reader or screen (laughs) screen reader apps for a mobile phone it helps you turn that on quickly because that was my main concern was how do people actually navigate through this app at first but also like from from just setup to giving you contextual information about how to use the app um as a sighted person it was it was very good, but I can only imagine that it would also be good for somebody with visual impairments just because it uses native um, different strengths of some of some of the <laughs> some of the phones, uh, different apps that are meant to help people that are visually impaired. Now, let me ask you, Blake, as our resident field Instagram reporter, I have to ask you, is this app something for non visually impaired people to use as well? Um. I don't really think that it it is. I think it's more fun to experiment with, uh, and it's. Uh, I think it actually serves better if you've ever been in a place and you don't know where you're going, and you you like want to go to a shop that's down the street, or you find some store. It can because it can store information about places you like. So if I, if you're in a new city, it could tell you like, hey, there's a 
like a shoe shop down the street that you might really like. And it's actually its cues are actually better than something from like Google Maps or Apple Maps because it it's it's very good about giving you spatial cues if you have your headphones in it can kind of direct you to where you need to go. Um, so I it's I hesitate to say that it's something that other people would want to use because like that article mentions, it's really important in this case to it, that it's not replacing a guide dog or a cane, um, but it's just trying to get you oriented and basically have a better exper- or an experience similar to what everybody else that is sighted is seeing. So they'll they'll notice that that there's a, a store on the right that they're familiar with or right. be able to say like, hey, look over there and they'll kind of understand where that person's pointing because like the, the app's able to give you kind of different beacons that you can refer to. Um, but in the audio sense, you know what you should do when you're in Boston later this month, you should definitely try to use this as a way to find some of these places. Yeah, I definitely will. I w- that was the first thing that popped in my head was the next next time I go to a city that I've never been, I want to try using this just for our, for my own perspective and see how it changes things for me. So that's a great option. Yeah, so let's talk about sort of the advances, right? So we've seen a couple different applications that help visually impaired individuals, and this ties in very nicely to one of the stories that we talked about last week, the cane troller, right? And I love that we are designing for... Um, accessibility, right? We're, we're designing for people to experience things who can't necessarily do so because of the way they listen. And for example, like we might have some blind listeners that listen to the show and the, the only way they get sort of the human factors news is by listening to you and me talk about it. Now I'm floating our own boat here, but think about that for a second. They can't read. And so one more way that you can sort of bring awareness of what's around you that contextual piece right that's amazing to me and and i love where this is going and i cannot wait to see where the technology leads yeah i definitely agree with you nick and i think for it's this is kind of a not the most PC way to put it, I guess, but it's kind of an eye-opening experience for sighted users too because i mean now you're able to see how how you could impact other designing for people that you have never had the same experience of or what different modes of technology you can incorporate into apps or your website design, or even, you know, things sort of like Google maps or extra features that are added on to there to really help other people get the same experiences that you're able to have all the time, but thinking about it in different modes, like, okay, I, I experience seeing this particular store in this case, what would that be like for somebody that has either low vision or just doesn't is blind completely? Well, in this case, it's using you know spatial cues to try and really help people locate in some area where that would be and be able to experience it in a similar way or in an analogous way to how a sighted user would. So it's I think it's a really great opportunity when we see these kinds of applications coming out for people that are into design or human factors to really think about like, okay, this is a totally different way of designing applications and systems. How could I apply this in maybe a smaller sense to things that I work on or things that I'm thinking of building? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we should talk about this next story here because this is, I got some thoughts, Blake. Oh, okay. Yeah, me too. So this should be interesting. Okay. So a study from the University of Barcelona provides a new view on the study of empathy and aggressiveness in violent people by enabling participants to experience a violent situation from the victim's perspective. 
the researchers developed a virtual reality system so that men who committed a domestic violent violence crime could get into the victim's shoes. So the study suggests that violent people tend to lack emotional recognition and that this is this virtual experience from a victor's victim's perspective improves the participants' perception of emotions. The study is based on research in immersive virtual reality where participants receive a virtual body that replaces their own. So virtual bodies can be drastically different from what the participant is like, but even so, the individual undergoes strong sub subjective illusions of owning that virtual body. So these illusions have an impact on, on the participants by altering how they perceive and act towards different situations. So in this case, violent behavior. All right, Nick, you said you got some strong opinions about this, but how would you like to tackle it? Do we want to just give people the basic background of the methodology, what really came out of this, or do you want to just kind of tackle it? You want to jump into the methodology first? You can be my guest. Yeah, let's talk about it a little bit. So their main objective, like the story says, was to really understand some of the underlying mechanisms of domestic violent behavior and what they could do, I guess, to really see if they could shift and give that emotional recognition more ground in people's minds that have committed these kinds of crimes. So basic methodology. So the researchers were analyzing the impact of this immersive VR experience in terms of the recognition of emotions in two kinds of people. So those that it had that had been a part of a violent crime uh, or the abusers and then just control participants. So people who were just acting as control. So before and after the virtual reality experience, participants took a, an emotional recognition test to determine whether the experience would change their perception and empathy or not. So just basics about the actual experience that people had. So participants entered a virtual atmosphere in which their body was replaced with that of a virtual reality woman, and they underwent a process of assimilation and identification with their virtual self. So really feeding that illusion of um, body. And then they saw a virtual man who actually entered the scene and displayed a violent behavior, both in terms of gestures and language, uh, who took the per who while they were in the perspective of the victim. So again, they were they were act. These were control and abusers who were acting as a, as the victim in this case. So basically, the results kind of indicated that offenders did have a significantly lower ability to recognize fear in a woman's face compared to those in the control. So this is before the VR experience. And after experiencing it themselves or having to be in the shoes of the victim, the ability to realize what fear looked like actually improved. So the, the kind of claims that are coming from the story is that in the study, they were able to show for the first time that changing aggressive people's perspective with immersive VR process processes like emo emotion recognition can be modified. And it's thought that this may be able to maybe a mechanism behind understanding violent behavior as well. So that's just kind of the rundown of what they did and what they found from it. So Nick, what do you have to say about this one? Uh, bullshit. It's bullshit. <laughs> I'm really, really sorry Thank to goodness. I'm really sorry to the researchers over there at University of Barcelona. I'm sure you're doing great work. But one thing that this article fails to mention is that they only measured recency. They didn't look at long-lasting effects, and that is the biggest like rub with me, right? So yes, you're gonna get in VR. You're gonna see this avatar that you are embodying getting uh, aggressed upon, and. Yes, you're going to have a visceral reaction because that's what happens in virtual reality, right? You, Blake, you tried out Arkham Batman Arkham VR, right? Yeah. 
Yes. So you have heard the story of Bruce Wayne's parents getting killed in front of him a million times. You lived that. Oh, I know that. it so well. You lived that. And it was very visceral at the time, but it's not long lasting, right? Yeah, as intense as it was in the moment, it's not like it's something that lasted beyond that, right? It didn't really it didn't actually modify how I feel about like the Batman story or VR in general. Right. And I keep referring to that because it had long lasting effects on me, only in the sense of this is something that I can illustrate as something that doesn't stick with you. It was very visceral in the moment. You can recall it. You can recall how visceral it was for you to finally see somebody get shot in front of your face. Your mother, Martha Wayne, shot dead. Your father, Bruce Wayne Sr. I don't know. What's his name? Uh, (laughs) I'm not a Batman guy. (laughs) Shot dead in front of your face. Both of them lying on the floor in front of your face as this guy with a gun walks up to you. It's very scary. It's very scary. And scary to the point where if somebody ever witnessed gun violence, which is a thing in the United States, go figure. I hate that. So if anyone did ever experience gun violence and and they experienced this virtual thing, yes, they would probably have PTSD. Now, if you never experienced gun violence and you experienced this thing, you would have a very strong visceral reaction. It would not change you long term. And that is what this study is saying. They're, st- they're saying like, yeah, people were changed after they saw it. And they weren't. They probably had a reaction right afterwards and was like, yeah, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. But is that going to change their behavior in the long run? Maybe not unless they have repeated exposure over several different sessions. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, over. it's not even really just about that, right? I mean, they're, they're making a claim that behavior is modified based on an emotion recognition test, which that's not really modifying behavior. That's modifying their answers to questions that they've already probably experienced something very similar to. Uh, and if I took a look at the video that they supplied in the article, and it, which was great because it gave me a better understanding of how you really get people to it to adapt and really feel like that they are a part of this virtual body. But just just the fidelity of it, I mean, I couldn't, I really couldn't see how that's going to extrapolate to the real no. world, right? It's it's just it's so lo-fi and it looks very much like The Sims, like even. Even if you are going through the acclimation process of feeling like, okay, I am this virtual woman, I mean, it's it's just not going to be the same. It's going to give you probably a visual experience, right? Because you're you're basically being attacked as a, as just a virtual being. So of course that's going to elicit some kinds of reactions. But I just I don't think that those measures that they're talking about are are one good enough to say that it's actually modifying emotional recognition behavior over time, like you were making the point. But also too, I. This is not getting at the underlying mechanisms of domestic violent behavior like it said that the, the research objective was, uh, which I think bothers me even more than the claims they're making. Because they didn't, they didn't go after the underlying mechanisms at all. Yeah, and let me, let me just make a quick segue here, Blake. You mentioned that you were dissatisfied with the fidelity. And I will have to say, though, fidelity does not like higher fidelity does not translate to higher presence. You can still have a sense of presence and being in a virtual environment uh, and and still feel things like they're real. You don't have to have that high fidelity. Um, So, so I'm glad you brought that up as, as just sort of a a reminder, but I, I, I agree with you. It's, it's everything else around, around the study that just makes it not sit well with me. There, there, there's some, um, I think it's the, 
the claims that they're they're choosing to make that surround this and and it could be a lack of translation uh with the article i'm not sure but that being said i think this is um a good example as to why you want to conduct good research and make sound generalizations when you do this because i mean we've seen okay back to the recency thing i'm gonna rant for a couple more maybe blake i should be on your ux rant podcast because hey do you like that i just plugged your podcast uh because look here's the thing this recency effect has been shown in other studies it's been seen okay somebody cuts a virtual log oh yeah i feel very sympathetic to the environment and and sort of conservation five minutes after i did that 20 years down the line they don't care it doesn't affect them at all. Oh my God, get over it. This doesn't do anything. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it should stand uh, stand with reason, right? We have something called the recency effect, and you want to take that into consideration when you're kind of talking about these kind of things. Testament um, three weeks. Did they remember yeah, what the thing was? three weeks. But the, I think the other problem here, Nick, is I don't understand what... Um, what they're talking about as far as emotional recognition can be modified. I, I think that you hit on something really important and that could be a translation uh, issue because this is from likely Spanish to English. And I'm just not sure what that actually means. Like what, what are they talking about when they're saying that emotional recognition was modified Did that? Were they just able to recognize a specific emotion in this case, fear better. Um, but what did it, and they don't talk about long lasting effects. So it may be that what, what, that they're just kind of blowing out of proportion the results they had with the uh, interpretation that we are seeing from uh, from this particular site in English. So that that I do want to throw that in there for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's that's it for news, right? Oh wow, only four stories. That's okay because we we talked to we talked them to death. You know what time it is, Blake? Oh, I do. Do you know what time it is? I do. Let's do it. It came from. It came from Reddit. All right. So this is It Came From Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit to bring topics that you guys, the community, is talking about. So any subreddit's fair game, as long as it relates to human factors and encourages discussion amongst you guys, the community. Or I guess us, because we're really the ones who are breaking it down. Anyway, Blake, we got time for, what, two or three of them. So I, I don't know, man. Which ones do you want to pick? Two three debatable because i know you have some strong feelings but i think it's something we should talk about on the show all right so let's let's just jump into them chronologically then uh so let's see here so we got first one is interested in hf or i am so sorry if i messed up your name samoj2 uh samoj2 goes on to write um just graduated with a bachelor's in kinesiology from the university of north dakota I've always been interested in human factors and ergonomics. Is it plausible to use my kinesiology degree to get into the health and ergonomics graduate program at the end of Minnesota? Or do kinesiology and human factors not relate? Um, Blake, what do you think about this one? I, I don't know. So I was kind of shocked that one, somebody's always been interested in human factors. Both talked about how it kind of came up later on down the road. So I thought it was awesome that we do in a large way. I mean, we're talking about there, there's an entire study of biomechanics about how people move and the consequences of that when you're designing products. And especially since with kinesiology, we're also talking about just how people move, but making it more efficient. And I mean, that's a big thing in human factors is really study either workflow or how they experience a specific product or process. 
So I disagree with their question more in that I think they have a great shot, especially getting into health and the Apple T perspective. I mean, designing the designing the ergonomics of tools you use for you know physical bastards bas- bachelor's degree to getting Bastards. into you know a master's in pt or a doctor in pt so i feel like there's a lot there's a giant connection and there's uh there's no better place to really apply your background if you don't want to get into that kind of medical field exclusively yeah no i completely agree with you blake i think that kinesiology is very closely related to biomechanics and there's a, there's a lot that you can sort of import from your studies now into the field of Human factors and ergonomics. There's um, in biomechanics, you can you can basically uh, take all these measures that you're doing in kinesiology, right? Blood pressure and uh, uh, bodily function. I don't know. I'm not a kinesiology guy. Don't 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 quote me on any of these measures. I don't know, Blake. I don't know. But there are definitely applications that you can take these and apply them in human factors and kind of use them as the basis for design and not necessarily. Uh, I don't I don't know what kinesiology does. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically just a study of the of how the no, human body mechanics work together. I right? know what so it is, right? It's yeah. it's the study. But but the human factors piece, the biomechanics piece is the application of that study to design. I think that is the clear-cut sort of thing. And I think it's totally reasonable for you to jump into the field from kinesiology as it is. Most definitely couldn't have said it better, Nick. Okay, great. Uh I'm glad. Uh let's jump into this next one. How different is an unmoderated usability test from a heuristics evaluation? This one is on the user experience subreddit from Rekt, Rektit. 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 Got it. Uh, <laughs> I wrecked his name. See what I did there? Uh, the re- <laughs> they go on to write, The real difference I see is that unmoderated usability tests are conducted with real users, while a heuristics evaluation is conducted by experts. Apart from the fact that unmoderated tests could also be video recorded, how are the two any different? Both, case, both cases use a task, task script for the participant expert uh, or t- participant or expert to conduct the review. Blake, this is not easy. I don't know how you do this on a weekly basis. And a survey for the participant slash expert to, to pro- provide feedback. I guess in heuristics evaluation, there is a scoring slash metric model that is used while the unmoderated usability test may be, may be only focused on qualitative feedback. Okay, Blake, let's unpack this little by little because there's a lot to go over here. There, yeah, there, there's a lot going on in this one. So, Nick, let's let's talk about un, unmoderated usability tests real quick. So, to me, that's kind of like a... Uh, like a service like usabilitytesting.com where it's it's more so it's 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 the one way mirror trick of a usability test but without you actually being there where it's it's kind of running this script that you that the user would walk through but you're not actually there you're more so just reviewing the video and is that what you think when the, you hear unmoderated yeah that's that's in my mind or at least you've put together some sort of prototype that you ship out to people and they take it and then they ship it back and you get the results. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So I, I don't know how, how other to tackle this and I'm just, I'm going to try and be as kind as I can, but I've got to say these are, these two methodologies are, I don't light years apart wildly from being, from being the same or being as similar as I, I think the, uh, the, Erect it actually thinks they are, and I'm gonna try and just break down why I think that. Hey Blake, so, before you do, just just a reminder: be nice. We post. Oh these. yeah, for sure. No, 
Uh, but I just it, it makes me wonder where they've heard this. But so unmoderated usability tests, of course, yeah, they're this one's recorded, but this is definitely more based on this task script that you mentioned, right? So in this in this case, it could be like Nick said, you're like you're shipping a prototype for review and you're like capturing metrics on it, or you're looking for qualitative feedback along the way or pre and post, right? So I've got I've got a kind of disagree with the last bit here. So, well, it un, that they mentioned, which an unmoderated usability test is really only focused on qualitative feedback. It's it's definitely to me, or if, if I was the one putting it together, it's going to be focused on both because if you're including some kind of survey material, whether it's pre or post, uh, to try and understand like how people felt through the experience, did they have any problems? Um, would they use it again or recommend it to other people? That's giving you a little bit of that qualitative feel. But throughout the unmoderated portion of it, even if it's sending out a prototype or if it's on one of these services like usertesting.com, you're going to want to bake in some kind of performance aspect to it, uh, whether it's like time on task or lostness scores, but understanding really some more hard metrics about how people used the actual piece of software or website or prototype that you built. Now, on the flip side of that, the heuristic evaluation is very different for me, for for my experience at least. Definitely conducted by you know three to, three or more experts that are looking through a, a piece of software, a physical product, whatever it may be, and using some kind of heuristic checklist, whatever they like to use. I mean, the typical one definitely is run by you know the Nielsen Norman heuristics, right? So you're just kind of walking through on a first pass, what's going on in the product? Do you, are you kind of spotting similar things? And then it's getting all these experts together, uh, getting like an aggregate of whatever they've seen, and then kind of going from there, trying to understand like, okay, from all of our perspectives, we're seeing issues with, you know, the status of where you are throughout the website, stuff like that. So for me, they're, they are vastly different. Um, but Nick, what do you, what do you think here? You know, Blake, I'm with you for most of that. So like, I, I agree that they are very different methodologies to get at very different things. You want to do a usability test and an unmoderated one for that it, in which you have users that are either remote that you cannot get to, or you just have, um, uh, you want to blast it out to as many users as you can. Now, the heuristic evaluation, you're right. It is conducted by experts or, or people who are familiar with, the uh with heuristic evaluation and the difference for me is less about sort of uh what what methods you use but what kind of things you can get out of it right you're always going to get more at least in my opinion out of a usability test because you can go through these heuristics right these are just best practices you're not going to get real insight as to what the user's doing unless you analyze their um their navigation patterns, unless you look at sort of the way they interact with this program and what their expectations are of the system, because you yourself are not a subject matter expert. You're going into the system as a naive user, and you're just kind of looking at it from a usability perspective when you're doing these heuristics, right? You're just kind of looking and saying, blanket statement, what can we fix? The usability uh, test, that actually gets into, yes, you have these scripts, but they are also informing you of uh, shortcuts and other ways that you may not have thought about these scripts as they're going through these um, tasks. Now, if it's unmoderated, you get less of that, but you still get enough from these things. And I will say, 
that at least for unmoderated usability tests to say it's not done with experts is absolutely incorrect because the experts are the ones that are setting this up in such a way that they get the data they need to get back, right? If you set up a usability test in such a way that you don't get good data back, then you're not going to get any insights. And it has a lot to do with the expert back home setting this thing up in such a way that, oh, if they click on this, report it so that way I know what they clicked on next versus, okay, they were able to complete the task, right? Just reporting whether or not the task was completed or not in the time. That that has less insight as, as opposed to, oh, they clicked this, then this, then this. So the fidelity of information that you get back from an unmoderated usability test can have great impact on sort of um, how you make changes to a product. Yeah, and the, the last kind of piece I'll throw in on this question is I think that actually one feeds into the other and maybe that's where the connection is coming from. Uh, because I mean, you could you could do a heuristic evaluation to really give you insights to where as, as like human factors experts or user experience experts, where you're seeing potential problems. And then you move into the usability test phase to one, test your assumptions and two, based off of other data that's hopefully gathered about the product, kind of bake that into your usability test. So I, I see that they definitely can be related. Like one, one could kind of give you baseline information to help you build the other, but Again, they're they're vastly different in what they give you and kind of the purpose. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we get into this last one? We got time for it. I didn't want to do it, but fine. Uh, okay. This one's titled Net Promoter Score. Better than nothing, isn't it? Uh, this is from Wayfill. Wayfi? Wayfi. All right. And then this is on the, uh, what is this? What subreddit is? I don't know what the subreddit this is from. All right, anyway. It had to have been from the user experience and one. That one. All right. So the Net Promoter Score is an index ranging from negative 100 to 100 that measures the willingness of customers to res uh, recommend a company's products or services to others. It is used as a proxy for gauging the customer's overall satisfaction with the company's product or service and the customer's loyalty to brand. That's all they said. But the question was, it's better than nothing, isn't it? Okay, Blake. All right, Nick. Typically, I go first, but ah. I want to hear you crush this one because I feel like you've got some strong fear feelings about the NPS score. Yeah, it's a piece of shit. All right, so <laughs> the <laughs> I don't like it, man. I, I it's the same thing with the SUS, right? The system usability scale. These these one metric to rule them all things are are trash. They're trash. I'm sorry. I hate them because you can't distill everything into one single metric. Now, is it better than nothing? fine yes it's better than nothing because you still have something right something is better than nothing but let me get back to how trashy these things it's just it's stupid if you are gonna risk everything on a singular man i feel like i'm really ranting today i, I feel like i'm just in a combative mood i don't I know i need to catch you on one of these when i do my podcast because i could use an extra ranter on that oh man maybe yeah let's 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 set it up uh but yeah i i just think that this is if you're gonna put all your eggs in one basket don't make it be one of these make it be like put put your eggs in multiple baskets do maybe a usability test and a heuristic eval and and maybe the sus in addition to everything else maybe the nasa tlx if that makes sense for what you're doing i don't know but don't just do one score sure it's a battery of questions and you can look at every question and and kind of how it does it but one score to rule them all does not exist this is not lord of the rings get out of here okay blake go yeah okay so net promoter score i, I just can't 
I can't get behind it. Like sus, I can understand, but again, as Nick has just said, it doesn't make sense to hedge all of your bets on one thing uh, in in anything in life in general. You don't hedge all your bets on the one thing that you do. And in this case, you don't want to use just one metric to give you some kind of indication of whether people like it or don't, especially if it's based off of like just subjective opinion. And I I, I don't really know. And the the outcome metric here or the outcome that MPS is claiming to measure being the willingness of customers to recommend the company's product. I mean, what does that really even tell you? Because you're not getting a why or why not out of any of it. At, at very best, the only thing this could do is if you have, I guess, well, really, if you have a negative or a positive score, the best thing you could do is be like, okay, if I have a negative one, I need to go and test and figure out why or hold some kind of usability test to understand why people don't like the product or wouldn't recommend it to other people. But do in all cases, it does in all cases, does it make sense for a customer to recommend a product? I don't think so. There's some like business to business products that people don't recommend because they, they have to use them. So this is an awful kind of indicator for anything related to that. So it that you're, so we're only now limited to basically B2C, so business to cu- consumer products. But it, again, you've got such a wide range of consumers. What if that person doesn't even know somebody that uses a supercharged tax app or doesn't like to use those things? Well, then they're not going to recommend it to anybody. It, it's just it's an awful measure that I don't know where it came from. I, I've heard in different talks that it was cooked up by marketers or salespeople, and maybe it was. It doesn't really matter. Just don't hedge your bets on any one metric, and especially not net promoter score or sus for that matter. I mean, do multiple multiple tests or use multiple metrics. I mean, Google Analytics has got to be the simplest thing to at least look at and try and figure out like, okay, what's going on on our website or what's going on with our app? But definitely stay away from one metric to solve it all. All right, let's get out of here because I'm tired of talking about single usability metrics that are supposed to take care of everything. All right. Let's get out of here. If you guys like the stories or read it this week, let us know. Did you like them? Did you hate them? Did you like our ranting? <laughs> you know, just 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 give us feedback. I don't care. All right. Anyway, topics, news stories, whatever. You know where to find us. Social media, Slack, all that stuff. You can follow us all over the Human Factors Cast LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter at H Factors Podcast. Check out our SoundCloud and uh, leave us a comment over there. I want you to rant. Why don't you get on there and you rant? I don't even what's going on, Blake. All right, so <laughs> send us an email at humanfactorscast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 901-646-1432. That's 901-646-1HFC if you want to rant. Uh, you can also support us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash humanfactorscast. If you can't do that, if you can't support us financially, shame on you. Just kidding. Not shame on you. you it's okay because you can you can just like, subscribe, review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Store, whatever, you know, whatever your favorite podcast directory is. Go do that. That really helps us out. You know, all that stuff. And, of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. Mr. Blake Arnsdorf, I'm sorry if I made it sound like I'm apathetic. I'm just, I, I'm so over the NPS. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about metrics that can solve all of their problems just with one score? Oh, you guys can always find me at Don't Panic UX across YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. But I will not tell you that MPS will solve all your problems. All right. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me ranting and raving on LinkedIn or Twitter at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again, guys, for tuning into Human Factors Cast and dealing with us ranting. Until next time, it depends. It depends. It depends.
how bad your NPS is in. Negative 500! If you liked this episode, please leave us a rating from 0 to 100 in the comments below. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.